You, sir, are a novice at same-day D3 travel, apparently. Um, liking to get in a day early, maybe get some sleep at the hotel and, and get over to the stadium on time. You you took the uh, the uh, risky route by flying in the morning of the game, but you made it. And uh, if you didn't bring it up on the podcast, we'd be none the wiser. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the twice-weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 260, the one with an actual bracket. And it's the podcast for November 18th of 2019. I'm Pat Coleman. I'm the guy who handles all of the people's repetitive and inane questions on Twitter. Uh, I'm also the executive editor of D3Football.com. I don't know if you handle all of them, but I'm Keith McMillan. I'm the former player, the longtime co-host of Around the Nation here, and looking forward to uh, to diving right in because we got a pretty sweet playoff bracket, and we've got all the other trappings of Week 11, final week of the season, and the first few days of the second season. That's right. There are, of course, you know, fans of a couple of programs who are upset. We could have told you it was coming. In fact, I'm sorry, we actually did tell you it was coming. But there is a lot to be happy about in this bracket. I think this bracket is really interesting. Keith and I are going to run down some of the uh, some of the high points. Uh, we're going to talk also with Jim Catanzaro. Of course, he is the head coach of Lake Forest College and also the chair of the Division Three football committee. Really good conversation about how some of these things went down, what the committee wanted to do, what the people who hold the purse strings in the NCAA were willing to sign off on, and uh, that sort of thing. And of course, also, Keith and I were at MetLife Stadium on Saturday in East Rutherford, New Jersey, where there just happened to be a big Division Three rivalry game that set the record for most uh, highest paid attendance in NCAA Division Three football history. We're going to talk about all that. We'll hand out our game balls and all of that coming up in just a moment. But before we do that, we'll take, to take this time to note that the uh, D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by Gotta Have It. Our friends at GottaHaveItFanFoams.com, the purveyors. Yeah, we'll say purveyors of those 3D logo fan foam wall signs that we have seen people unboxing or unwrapping on uh, Twitter and on social media. Uh, the uh, These things, are the three-dimensional things that you can hang on your wall, you can put it uh, you know, in your desk, in your desk, on your desk, in your cube, in your office, at work. You know, show your D3 pride if you are a, a, uh, an alum of a handful of D3 schools or try to get your school to get on the bandwagon as well. Yeah, absolutely. You should because I guess we say every week these are uh, very official looking. They're a little bit bigger than your average uh, sticker logo, so and they're they're certainly more durable. You could take it to the game with you, bring it back home, put it right back in in your spot in your man cave or uh, on your wall somewhere. Um, and you know we just appreciate their support. And I think uh, the first six schools that got on board have been very happy with the product, and I think uh, everyone else will be too. Just when they see the level of, of detail and the level of officialness it brings to your uh, your team's logo. Yeah, these are D3 people who are doing this, so you know you know that uh, if you're a D3 school, you're going to get cared for. You're not going to get, you know, you're not going to be like working with a big company who is really concerned about working with, say, I don't know, Alabama or something like that and is not particularly interested in working with 
Birmingham Southern. I don't know. I'm just throwing out another school that's in Alabama. They're going to be interested in working with you to get your logo officially licensed and onto these. So go to gottahabitfanfoams.com and take a look at everything there. All right, Keith. Yeah, this was the day, the day we got a bracket. Obviously, uh, Greg Thomas and I put together a mock bracket on uh, Saturday night going into Sunday morning. I know that uh, you know we worked with the same 32 teams. The uh, committee chose the same five at-large teams that we did. We didn't necessarily hit uh, as many of the matchups as we wanted, I would say. Our previous, uh, previous go-round the, the previous week had some of these uh, same matchups on there as well though i think that you know one of the things is uh, we are always trying to push the envelope like we did not want to have redlands play mary harden baylor in our mock bracket and we you know moved heaven and earth to try to do that and you know if the committee had been able to get the ncaa to sign off on that then i'm sure their bracket would probably have looked even more similar to ours but there's a lot of stuff here that you know, if you're a, a you know a longtime Division three fan or even just a, a fan of the past handful of brackets, I think you'll find some things here that are different and better than some of the things that have been complained about in the past. Well, I certainly think that um, it's not just the the different part, you know, because I, I think every year when you guys do that projection and you try to get creative, you know, that's the first thing a lot of us read and, and chuckle at. And we're like, man, we all know Harden Simmons is going back to Mary Harden Baylor, or you know, Redlands is going to Mary Harden Baylor, and and to give the the latest iteration of the committee and the past few some credit, you know, they've made an effort to try to mix that up, to uh, you know, to to get um, a team like a Harden Simmons, or in this case, a Redlands, to try to play some other folks, and just because the way things shook out this year. You know, with uh, with Chapman winning the automatic bid out of the Skyac and Redlands being in as an at-large, you have the two California teams, and instead of having to send one of them up to the Northwest like you normally do, you get a game in California, which is uh, probably pretty nice this time of year and certainly a big deal uh, for, for Chapman on their campus. But geography made a lot of these matchups for you pretty easily, and I think that holds true in a different way over on uh, the East Coast and, uh, and in parts of the Midwest where – there were just some because there are so many teams within a short drive of each other. There's there are some matchups where you take a look at the seeding, and it just makes too much sense to not do it. So you, we'll talk a little bit, of, a bit about Wabash and North Central and, and Hanover and Mountain Union um, a little later. But I, I think there are matchups like the SUNY Maritime at Salisbury, like Bridgewater, like Delaware Valley at Bridgewater, and uh, some of the other ones in the Midwest. Where, uh, where it just kind of makes a lot of sense. And Barry at Huntington, you know, geography dictates that one too. So I think I think the matchups you get, I probably say this every year, uh, the first round will be some mismatches, and that's sort of the price of, of opening the doors to the playoffs for everyone. And then ra- rather than having some, um, some administrators and coaches and uh, ADs in a room deciding whether your conference – champion is good enough to participate in the playoffs your conference champion gets a chance to show for itself how good it is and you get upsets you get some surprise games in round one and we'll get a few of those but i really like the look of round two uh this year and i think there'll be some really uh, that'll be an exciting weekend uh, and, and some high quality games and i think i'm glad that it, i'm glad that it is because that's also uh or maybe it's maybe is, is it not thanks yeah you know, it is still thanksgiving this year yeah it uh 
that's the weekend where the crowds are, are sort of the thinnest because the students have left camp left campus. So you, the fact that we're going to get a really great set of games on the weekend of, of November 30th, I think, is, is something to look forward to. I, I want to read from uh, one of the texts that I got. Earlier this week, it was before the selection, but once we had already put out a projection, uh, it is said, uh, to take a number two Skyak team out of a historically weak conference would be very surprising. Who could Chapman or Redlands match up with and really be favored? And my response to this guy was, well, Linfield, perhaps. Historically weak goes out the window when you're one and two beat the Northwest Conference one and two. And, you know, some of these are people who are like coaches, former coaches, athletic directors, former athletic directors, people who should understand that uh, historically weak means very little in comparison to what has happened this year, right? You know, so if you came into the beginning of the year and someone said that, you know, the Skyac is going to get two bids and the American Rivers Conference is going to get two bids, yeah, I think people would have, uh, you know, would have looked at you funny. But as the way the season played out, this is what, those are the two, those are two things that needed to happen. Those were obvious uh, choices. Nobody uh, should really have been arguing with Redlands getting in the field or with Warper getting in the field the way that their resumes ended up. And I think it's it's very easy for a, any D3 follower, diehard or casual, to look at the string of history because history in D3 is generally pretty consistent um, and just assume a lot of things are the same as they were or as they always are. Mountain Union and Mary Harden Baylor are opposite sides of the bracket. You got UW-Whitewaters in. You have a lot of familiar faces Back in the tournament, your Wesleys, your North Centrals, you know, programs like that, Wheaton, who, who are in all the time. But you also have Union, undefeated powerhouse. Uh, Salisbury this year, undefeated powerhouse. You know, Muhlenberg uh, back again after a really great year last season. You have some new faces and, and some teams who I think can do a little bit of damage. You know, you mentioned Chapman, uh, St. John's, and Whitewater uh, losing late in the season. I thought took a little bit of the pressure off the committee to to consider those two teams for number one seeds. And so it, uh, it really turned out to be um, a bracket where some things are the same, and, and that will always be the case. You'll see familiar teams, and, and powerhouses will always be back in. But I think there's enough new here to, uh, to keep us excited. Yeah, Wheaton gets a number one seed for the first time you know, since we have had this rendition of the Division Three playoffs. Um, you talked about and they uh, dodged they dodged Mount Union. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. That, that is basically what you have to do, right? You have to play well enough to be a number one seed in uh, in order to avoid Mount Union. The Mount Union bracket, uh, we'll talk about it with uh, Jim Catanzaro later. Uh, I really like the look of that. Um, you talked about the new faces, as it were, in Salisbury and Union, or at least faces that we haven't seen at this level of the playoffs in a while. Be interesting to see what. Salisbury can do because it seems like they're performing at a really high level on offense and actually have some, you know, and Jack Lenham can actually throw the ball, which is not something they've always had the ability to do with their uh, with their option offense. Um, Mary Harden Baylor, uh, you know, gets a challenge in the first round. It's like it has happened there before. The quality of their first two opponents is probably kind of backwards. You get your second round opponent first and your first round opponent maybe second. I know we tried to put Huntington at Mary Harden Baylor in the first round. North Central playing potentially Mountain Union in the second round, whereas that is another thing that baffles me is so many people look at that and they look at this and say, 
oh, there's nobody here to challenge Mount Union. It's like people are not looking at, they're just looking at a team's record um, and saying, oh my gosh, North Central is 9-1. North Central is the number five team in the country. They've been blowing the doors off of people. Now, I, now I'm beginning to sound like Dave McHugh on Hoopsville, um, but that's okay. We're at the time of year where, uh, <laughs> where we can talk about, you know, since we're down to 32 teams, we can talk more about teams individually that way. Well, and I do want to, you know, have my, whether you want to call it a Dave McHugh moment or not, uh, I, I want to have, I want to give a little, you know, talk to our listeners because I, I know that this is the place for diehard D3 fans to get their fix. But before we get too much further into the, the minutia, I think there are some things that are accepted truths for our regular listeners that do need to be reiterated for the casual listeners or for those of you joining us for the first time. And it's really as simple as this. D3 is huge. 247 teams, 32 playoff spots. you got 28 conferences with all but one accepting an automatic bid to the playoffs. You've only got five at-large spots. There are nine undefeated teams this season, 19 more that lost just one game, and 26 more in D3 that had two losses. So, yeah, there's no way your two-loss team had a shot at an at-large bid. And there's not a whole lot the selection committee could have done when you have eight nine-and-one teams, including seven with great resumes and several from power conferences, and only five spots to reward them with. And that completely ignores the crossover play in upstate New York this year and in Texas and Wisconsin, where we had playoff caliber teams that beat each other up and left a few eight and two, seven and two records out there. So as we always say around here, the, this playoff is not the 32 strongest teams. That's why you see teams ranked in the teens in our top 25 that can't get into the NCAA tournament. Because a Division Three membership chose access over power. That, that's how we got here. So the kids on the field today weren't alive when the old 16-team system was in place. And for you Division I heads, the BCS is but a memory. But we've seen what more subjectivity accomplishes, and it's not better than this system that relies so heavily on SOS and the other numbers that are that are in the playoff criteria. And we've hopefully you've educated yourself on what the, the five primary criteria are. Look, the old system, it wasn't better. It, committees had too much power then. And I know nobody remembers when normal teams from the ODAC and the SCAC and the MAC and the MIAA could make stag bowl runs. But the last thing you want is a committee empowered to guess at who is and who isn't capable of even belonging in the playoffs. So we get to decide what happens on the field. And as a division, Division Three decided that every conference would get its chance. And for those of you who blew the first chance, there are five second chance tickets out there. Nine and one doesn't entitle you to one of them. Losing your only game in overtime doesn't entitle you to one of them. And playing a, in a well-regarded conference doesn't entitle you to one of them. Playoff selection is a cold business, and everyone's going to have a gripe when it's their team affected, regardless of whether or not uh, they understand the process. I get that. But I actually think this committee has done well with what it has been given to work with. Whitewater and St. John's, those late-season losses took a lot of pressure off them as far as the number one seeds go. The Skyac getting two teams in made the West Coast playoff picture easier than it usually is. The South shook out well, and Salisbury's early season win over UW Oshkosh turned out to be a meaningful result. So Week 11's excitement ended with that Oshkosh win over Whitewater that got it in the field and pushed someone else out. But it was an amazing weekend of football in which rivalry games were played, seniors did this thing for the last time, and a new all-time attendance mark was set, and we were there, Pat. We were there, and we'll talk more about it in just a moment. Back on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, 
Keith and I, of course, started this weekend at MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey, where we saw the Cortica Jug game. And uh, I know it was not my first Cortica Jug game. I don't even remember if this was your first or if this was one of the ones that you had been out to see. It was my first. I, uh, at one point, had a cousin uh, at Ithaca and was going to go see it maybe like 2004 or thereabouts. And I think I went to the Hampton Sydney game at the last minute. And uh, so this was my first. I haven't seen it on campus yet. But uh, this one certainly lived up to the hype, lived up to the billing. And not to say if you've seen one, you've seen them all, because there are certainly differences between Wabash DePaul and Amherst-Williams and Randolph-Macon, Hampton-Sydney, and Union-RPI and all the other great rivalries. But the feeling, I think, is is very similar across the board when the alumni overlap and this is the more important game than homecoming. And the, it, the games are better, and I think this was the case today, the games are better when both sides in the rivalry are good. And you saw two good teams come in here on Saturday to MetLife Stadium, set the Division Three attendance record, finish the season with eight wins. And you saw them play what was a relatively good game. It didn't have a lot of big, exciting plays, but it was exciting enough. Got a few of those in the third quarter and uh, and got it down to a one-score game in the final seven minutes. So I don't think you could ask for a whole lot more. No, indeed. It, it, there was a stretch in the beginning of the third quarter where Ithaca had the game in hand. They were up by 20. They definitely had momentum. Uh, Cortland started with two three-and-outs. You know, they never had the ball all afternoon to that point, and they really didn't have it much after that either, but uh, hit a big bomb to that uh, Jason Carlock took down to the eight-yard line. Zach Tripodi punched it in, you know, in front uh, of the fans, the Cortland fans on that side of the field, and then uh, Brockport had some trouble with penalties and were backed up in their own end and similarly, you know, backed up in that louder section of the uh, of the stadium and it got down to a six point game and things you know went from we're talking about playoff matchups and other games that are going on somewhere else and then bam 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 it's a ball game again there's a play at the start of the fourth quarter where Ithaca you know Cortland had had seized momentum by that point it made it a a, a a closer game and was getting ready to take the ball back and then uh, Ithaca completes a third and 24 a 35 yard completion on that one and you think at that point game's over Ithaca drives down uh, gets inside gets to the point where they have a, a, a third and goal incomplete pass from Joe Germanario um, miss a field goal from 28 yards and then Cortland drives down scores makes it 26-20 and at that point 649 left in the game the game becomes everything I think everyone in this stadium had signed up for. It, it lives up to the, the Cortica Jug rivalry and the great history of it. The atmosphere became um, a lot more intense when Cortland got into it because I think the Ithaca fans seemed to uh, fill in their side of the bowl a little better than the Cortland side. And so, um, and then Ithaca winning. So they are, um, that they were pretty lively, and it wasn't until Cortland made this interesting where, where that side of the stadium got lively. And so for a short period in the fourth quarter, this game was everything was billed to be. Um, and, it, and it wasn't until Ithaca gets the ball back, Pat, and there was a pretty special play that, uh, that, that put it over the top for Ithaca. Yeah, I would love to say we have a highlight of this. Uh, but I don't know if I'll be able to pull it out of the uh, impromptu Facebook Live broadcast we did. We'll describe it for you, though, a play in which the, uh, you know, Joe Germanario has taken this drive and he has, you know, as he has done throughout the entire second half and really in the first half as well, has taken Ithaca on his, on his back, you know, gains of, 
you know, 26 yards on the previous four rushes, and and then uh, they're at the Cortland 46-yard line. A little bit of razzle-dazzle, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that leaves uh, Vito wide open downfield. Hits him at about the five-yard line. He takes it the final uh, five yards in for a 46-yard touchdown with 3.06 to go. And that was where, yeah, that was where the game turned. And it was a great way for a uh, fantastic rivalry and a great game to you know, to have its exclamation point. And I think uh, over time, the Cortland folks will be glad that they were here for this one. You know, as far as we know, Cortland's going to have the game back on campus next season. And two years from now, it'll be back at Ithaca's campus unless um, Ithaca was the host here at MetLife Stadium. So maybe they'll be interested in doing it again. But I think this was probably a one-off or at least uh, once in a while sort of thing. You know, they may decide to do it again. But it was really just special to get the game closer to the the people who live in the New York City metropolitan area. Um, It's such a drive. And if you guys are are listening and you're not familiar with the the New York State geography, uh, Ithaca, New York, and Cortland, New York, not really close to New York City. Good, I don't know, three-hour drive. And uh, so to to put it in the city and to make it not be a whole two-day adventure to to come out here, or, you know, there were definitely people at the hotel uh, last night from from either side of the rivalry, but um, for it to for it to be here in New York, I think was a big deal. You saw people from years ago, and I could tell because you know they're wearing their their jersey from their year, wow. and then jerseys have evolved yeah. uh, over time. So it looks like maybe like an old ratty practice jersey, and they're hugging some guy <laughs> in the in the hallway in the hotel. Um, probably probably those guys played together, you know, and there was a lot of that here. The tailgate was certainly. Um, you know something that you'd see at a before an NFL game, it, it, and and it's probably still going on right now, Pat. As we record this, we've we've been done with the game for you know, an hour and a half now. Um, I I just thought it it, it took a while because it was slow. It was slow. Uh, Ithaca's offense was methodical, but it really did finally at some point live up to the billing. Whether or not there were actually forty five thousand one hundred and sixty one people in their seats in the stadium at any point, we'll never know. No, but it doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, what we have been tracking has always been paid attendance. And, uh, you know, whether there were more people here than 37,000 is kind of a moot point, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately. I don't even know what to think about that. It was, you know, it's a much bigger stadium than a baseball park was, obviously. So you could put 40,000 people in this lower bowl and you would still fill, I think, most of every seat. I think the, the, the top tier here is probably 10,000 maybe or they sell that sell that I don't know. I'm not really good at uh, judging these sorts of things in gigantic venues. What I will say is that uh fantastic stage for Joe Germanario to have this great game on. He threw for 251 yards and two scores, ran for 159 yards on 34 carries and had three touchdowns there as well. But you shouldn't take our word for it. Why don't we just have you hear what Cortland coach Dan McNeil said? He beat me at Brockport. He's beat me uh, at Ithaca. So, uh, uh, good quarterback, no question about it. And the final score, Ithaca defeats Cortland 32-20. to If Cortland had had any playoff hopes going into that game, they were dashed with the loss. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls, Keith. And one of the things I love about Week 11 games is that they just seem to be more prone to have the craziest of events. 
The one I have in mind comes from the Manchester-Anderson game, which I forgot when we talked about it on 259. This is a trophy game as well. Manchester hung on to the bronze ball behind an incredible performance by senior running back Donovan Henderson. He finished his career with a 394-yard rushing day with eight touchdowns on the ground in a 70-54 win. Uh, just the second Division three player ever to score eight rushing touchdowns in a single game, at least according to Manchester's release. Henderson averaged 13.1 yards per carry in that win, and for that, he gets my game ball, perhaps even bronzed. And I'm giving my game ball to the UW Oshkosh defense, which, which isn't out here throwing shutouts or anything. But five players intercepted passes against UW-Whitewater, and the Titans scrounged up enough offense, just 236 yards total, but 13 points in the fourth quarter, for a 27-20 win that sent ripples through Division Three. Bethel, Cortland, and Olivet knocked themselves out of the one-last pool with losses on Saturday, but Oshkosh unknowingly and unintentionally ended the season of John Carroll or maybe Susquehanna. Now, obviously, the Susquehanna will still get to play a postseason game, but interceptions will always be near to this former DB's heart and five that send shockwaves through the country. That's rare and game ball worthy. I swear that that every time I turned around on Saturday night, he was thrown another interception after the game. We uh, drive Keith to the train. We go get amazing Italian food that, by the way, somehow Jim Catanzaro is also like the guru of Italian food in Secaucus, New Jersey. Um, and then, uh, Go back to the hotel, and I'm hanging out with the D3Photography.com guys. We're watching this game, and uh, you know it's getting late, and I'm like, I'm going to go back to my room. He, he guy, uh, Oles had just thrown a pick. Oles had just thrown a pick, and I got back to my uh, room and plugged the turned the computer back on. I was like, is this the buffer showing me the same interception again? It's like, and then <laughs> and then he threw another, and I was like, game sends uh, shockwaves through the country. Made uh, reverberations through our bracket, reverberations through their bracket. Well, we'll just let Jim talk about their bracket. The moment we've all been waiting for, the conversation with Jim Catanzaro, the uh, head football coach at Lake Forest College and the chair of the Division Three Football Championship Committee. Uh, obviously, a, uh, a long weekend for you guys uh, and... You know, I noticed that I, I noticed very closely that you tweeted that you guys were wrapping up sometime around maybe one fifteen in the morning, if I remember correctly, and then restarting at about eight thirty or or something along those lines. I, I can see that you guys didn't get any much more sleep than we did. No, sleep was uh, that's the cousin of death, and Keith will know what that reference is. So it'll be a it's it's definitely not something we uh, strive for when we're here in Indianapolis. Cousin of death. I'm going to have to make a note of that. All right. So we got to the point where uh, there was at least some general consensus among basically everybody who was putting together mock brackets and putting together real brackets in terms of the five at-large bids. So I know that, you know, we went through our reasoning and, you know, we uh, and that sort of thing. I'd like to hear kind of what goes into especially these final spots, right? What, whether it's you know the folks uh, at uh, North Central or if uh, John Carroll is on the board at the end or Susquehanna or something like that. Among these one-loss teams, what did you guys see in the teams that you chose that was different than uh, the teams that were left out? Well, obviously the uh, Whitewater-Oshkosh result last night definitely created a little bit of havoc in our uh, putting together the bracket and the at-large bids. But there was some incredible strength of schedule numbers 
um, that were out there, and everybody was pretty comparable in regionally ranked wins. Now, there were some wins that were better than others, but for the most part, the um, the strength of schedule numbers and then kind of the evaluation of the the results of the regionally ranked opponents, um, those are the two big things. Those are the things that made the decisions, and um, I think a couple of them were, were kind of, I don't want to say no-brainers because we did go through the entire process, but there's a couple of those first two that it was it was pretty obvious. You mentioned uh, strength of schedule. I know that you guys know, and uh, I think the people who follow D3 super closely know that when you're in a 10-team league, the variance in strength of schedule is really minimal. So how do you guys, you know, do you, how do you compensate for something like that? Well, for the most part with the at-larges, there's, it's, it's difficult to compensate. It's really okay. Where was their good win? Did they have a regionally ranked win? So if the strength of schedules are really not quite a, a telling factor, or there's not a big discrepancy, then it's really kind of a, okay, if we've got these two teams, who do they beat? Who are their regional ranked wins? Who are their regional ranked losses? Do the regional ranked losses and, and wins propel one team above the other? And, and I think that was it. And then uh, there was a, a couple of cases where the regionally ranked opponents maybe fluctuated over the two weeks or were they still on the board as regionally ranked win, you know, regionally ranked opponents or had they fallen off? Um, and so it was kind of a difficult, difficult thing to look at there to see, you know, for a couple of those teams, it was really who on their, it was also kind of looking at their rack. Where did the rack put them? And cause you can't take a team before a team ahead of them is off the board. And I think that that maybe probably hurt teams more than, than anything else. Yeah. So if, as a member of the national committee, right, you have a, if you have a, a board that is presented in front of you with a pecking order, do you have the ability to then go back to that uh, committee and say, Hey, you guys have, you know, X, Y, Z second on your pecking order, but we think that they might make a better candidate than ABC. You know, is that, is that something that you guys have the ability to do when it comes to selection night? Uh, not really. Once it, once it kind of gets here to us, I don't think we've, at least in the time that I've been on here, I've not seen us put a, an at-large candidate above another at-large candidate, um, in contradiction with the RAC's recommendation. When does that feedback get shared? You know, obviously there must be some conversation, right? Yeah. Usually it's the first regional rankings. So, you know, when we do our mock ranking the week before is kind of a test run. And then the second week, um, once, if we start seeing criteria um, not being followed, that would really be it. But to be honest with you, if the criteria, if the rack is justifying that this is how they're ranking a team and they're consistent throughout their entire regional ranking, we're not all 10 spots. We're not going to really um, get engaged too far there. If they don't seem to be applying criteria equally across the region, that's when we would have a conversation if we needed to have any. All right. So, you know, this may be boring to a may have been boring to a lot of people because we've agreed on so many things over the course of, you know, this conversation. You know, your five at larges, our five at larges, your five number one seeds, for lack of a better term, and our five number one seeds. It doesn't seem like there's much uh, to disagree about. So now I'm going to kind of dive into some of the more the min minutiae. That's a word, and I don't know why I couldn't say it. Uh, some of the the more picky matters, such as, um, you know, I assume that when we see final regional rankings, that we are going to see that Hanover is ranked ahead of Wabash, yet they uh, clearly have a less favorable first round matchup. Hanover's playing Mount Union, Wabash is playing North Central. That doesn't seem like it would fit with what I, we expect the North region rankings to come out as. 
Uh, no, and I think what you're going to find there is the the piece of the student athlete experience that we try to do as much as possible when there's not a, a geographic limitation to it of having teams play different teams in the playoffs. And so last year, Hanover played North Central uh, in the first round, similar to Martin Luther in a couple, you know, having had played St. John's and a few other. We're, we're trying to mix that up a little bit to give teams a different experience that we're going on the road. Um, as best we can. You know, this is, as we've often said, this is not a truly seeded tournament. Um, however, we do try to respect parts of that as best we can. But the trying to give some people some different opportunities um, to play different teams was definitely a piece of this year's uh, first round anyway. I would think you could have done the same thing by, and uh, sometimes three-way trades get me confused, but uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to walk my way through this. Wabash, to Mountain Union, Hanover to Whitewater, and Monmouth to North Central. And I think that that would have satisfied all of those things that have been mentioned. Uh, that would have been close. There, there's, without me being 100% positive, there may have been a second round game that would have then led to a flight based on how it was bracketed off, but I'm not, not positive. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to let you have, I'm going to let you have one. I'm just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate you letting me have one. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that, uh, uh, these guys are all, all pretty, uh, the question would be if Monmouth can get to Mount Union on the ground. And I'm, I'm fairly certain that they can. Um, I like the way that this, uh, bottom right bracket is, is set up. It does kind of spread obviously, uh, geographically, uh, in the fact that, uh, you could have someone like, uh, Wesley and North Central meet in the quarterfinals and then, you know, trigger an extra flight or I think Bridgewater and North Central are a flight in the quarterfinals. How far out do you guys have to project that stuff uh, in order to to minimize that sort of transportation issue? The uh, the two big one, the first round is definitely the most important with the second round being um, another one that they would prefer us not to expand too far. They understand if there are, you know, extenuating circumstances, but the uh, the ability to keep Chapman and Linfield away from the Mary Harden Baylor, uh, Barry, three flights in one bracket, you know, type of deal, I think was kind of a, a good one for us to be able to spread that out. But I, I do think that the quarterfinals, semifinals, that there's, we expect flights in the semifinals, right. um, and in the quarterfinals, you know, if the way the bracket falls is how it falls. Well, and so let me ask about uh, um, about Chapman and, and Redlands, for example. Uh, obviously, you guys had the ability this year to, or the mandate actually, to not match them up in the first round. It doesn't seem like it was much better for Redlands, though. I think Redlands gets the gets the the bad half of this deal, having to go to Mary Harden Baylor in the first round again, and that's a place that Redlands has been quite a bit. Yeah, you know, I think a, a team that was a third ranked team in the region. Um, the issue was, did they deserve a, a home game or did Chapman and but Chapman by virtue of their, their victory got the home game um, in Linfield and Redlands having played each other in the regular season. Yeah. We try to avoid that as well. So it, there was just, you had four teams that had to be involved in the flights one way or the other. And that was just kind of how it, how it fell, unfortunately. So it, doesn't... it was not, it was not the original proposal. I, I can tell you that we really wanted to have Redlands host a game out there. This year, I think that may have been even something you guys proposed, um, but the Redlands additional flight actually triggers another flight because you can't bank on Redlands defeating someone to play Chapman in round two. Uh, we actually tried that a couple of years ago with Harden Simmons, and it it backfired on us. So we we definitely weren't going to get that one passed, even though we tried, but we we did put that forward as a first option, and that was a no-go with the NCAA. Yeah, it actually seems like uh, you guys don't save – you don't – 
trigger any extra expense. Part of the whole thing was that there was extra budget allocated to this, and you basically have the same number of flights. Yeah, but it's not the it's we did keep in the mandate. If we were if we were doing that to fight the mandate, um, then we would have probably been given that opportunity to do so. But we had an opportunity to do it without having that happen, if that makes sense. I'm going to lean on you for just a second. I'm going to assume that I'm not going to be able to go out and find a drop that says uh, fight the mandate. <laughs> probably not. Probably not. All right. What are the uh, what are the other things that you would expect or want uh, a Division Three fan to understand that's coming in at this point and probably has not listened to podcast two sixteen or maybe you know too many of the previous thirty or so? What 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 is the the thing that you need people to understand about this? Uh, how the bracket's done? That the the kind of the option is we've got five at largest. So the the teams who don't get in with the automatic qualifier. Um, that, that is getting more and more difficult. Uh, it seems each year, um, you know, in certain regions, um, depending how non-conference games go, seem to get a real big bump in strength of schedule. So last year, for instance, the South region was able to get three in, um, this year it was, the, it's the West region. And so I think that that's kind of a fluctuation that, um, division three folks probably need to be, um, expecting when there's only five, that one team can trigger a really big boost for other teams, and they may affect two or three of the teams in that region when that happens. Um, the other part is, you know, it's it's a opportunity for each team to play. And though we would all like to have the, if we if we felt that the game one was a winnable game, we'd all want that. But the bottom line is, this is a tournament of, you know, some really talented football teams, and because there's no guarantee of where you're going to be slotted. There's no true seating that really makes it hard when you, when you do have some of those matchups, you're like, Oh, this doesn't seem fair. Well, you know, it's, it's the playoffs. There's 27 AQs. There's the, the five at larges and we're, we're going to have to play a lot of good teams. And there's unfortunately until the, uh, the tournament two turns into a fully seated tournament with an unlimited travel budget. Um, it's not perfect, but it's a lot better than, you know, only having 16 teams in the tournament that are selected, you know, by a committee with no guarantee of access to the championship. And the continued access is something I think should be valued by, by every Division Three fan because every year you have a chance to go to the tournament just by winning your conference. I really feel like the committee over the course of the last couple of years has taken kind of a, uh, a turn towards what I might term, you know, kind of common sense decision making. There have been times where the committee has been run by, um, shall we say, uh, criteria strict constructionists right we are going to use these five criteria and these five primary criteria only and we're not going to consider anything else i hear you talking about you know what's the best win on the schedule or what's the you know what is what is the team's loss and those are the sorts of things that i think make sense and clearly enough people on the committee think make sense but since they're not in the criteria there's no guarantee that people will continue to do that how do we codify this sort of thing and make it get it get it to the point where we can kind of continue to replicate these common sense decision making practices going on forward when you're no longer on the committee well hopefully we've set that standard in, in kind of principle and protocol of how we've handled things and i think there's been if there hasn't been complete satisfaction there's at least been understanding um i think you and i have talked about quite a bit the transparency we've tried to do over the last two years at least of getting the information out into the whys and, and making sure people understand it and hopefully, if there is a change in the philosophy on the on the national committee, that whomever the chair is will come out and, and have those same conversations with you. Because I think if everybody knows how the approach is being applied ahead of time, 
it makes it a lot easier to accept the the decisions that are made maybe. And then I think that it's, as you and I have talked, it's, it's become a lot easier for you to predict who's coming into the tournament the last couple of years, because we have not really deviated from what we've tried to do. Um, and, I, and I, again, I think that openness out front really is the key to making sure that everybody's at least understanding, if not satisfied about the, the, the challenges. I've never been satisfied. Right. Nobody is ever going to be completely satisfied, but uh, at least if there is understanding, that is helpful. I know that we have been uh, significant beneficiaries of the openness and transparency from the committee, uh, and I hope that the Division Three fan base has been able to, uh, you know, uh, been able to accept that as well and understand things and just kind of see things as they develop and realize that there is a reason why things are happening. Yeah, and I think it's been educational for coaches too because there's the number of coaches that I've talked with who have listened to certain podcasts, probably 216 <laughs> and a few others, where they have uh, really listened to how we were making our decisions. And I, I know of at least two coaches who have mentioned to me that it is going to change the way that they schedule, you know, kind of their non-conference games. Um, but I've also had another coach tell me, he goes, it makes sense as long as you win those games. And he goes, I've, I've, I've scheduled the games and not won the games. And I still get in as a the you know automatic qualifier, but my my seating goes down because I end up with a loss or two losses that I otherwise would not have. And uh, so I, I think there is a, a risk there that if you a team that's banking on one of those at large bids, you've got to go up your strength of schedule numbers. And if you're a team that's an AQ, you you still want to try to find one or two of those to to help yourself position against other teams on the line when it comes to figuring out where you're playing. Bringing Keith back in here on this podcast. We kind of throw out a good amount of our usual rundown to focus on the bracket. And uh, first, we're going to focus on what the committee got right. And for me, one of the things I think they got right is not giving the OAC what is essentially two automatic bids. You know, for all intents and purposes, a one-loss OAC team has gotten a, a second bid automatically as long as they have finished the season with just one loss. The closest we came to having one left out previously was in 2001. Ohio Northern was left out. In 01, they were 8-2 and two overall. One of those losses was out of region to UW-Stevens Point, which won the WIAC that year. Out of region losses was a thing back then, unlike today when all games against uh, Division Three teams are, uh, are considered as part of the primary criteria. Anyway, so the reason I feel the committee got this right is we only have five at-large bids. We simply just can't guarantee one of them to anybody. And last year, with the OAC runner-up losing at home in the first round, this year is as good as any to leave out uh, John Carroll. Their resume is fairly vanilla, right? Beat the sixth-place team in the WIAC in their non-conference game, lost to Mount Union. And if there were a poster child for it's not who you lost to, it's who you beat, they'd be in navy blue jerseys with a gold helmet. Well, I don't think there's any argument that John Carroll is a playoff-caliber team, but there were eight teams that didn't win their conference because of a single loss and needed one of the five spots available for them. No matter how you slice it, someone was getting hosed. And for all we know, the team most screwed by Oshkosh win on Saturday night might have been Susquehanna, not the Blue Streaks anyway. I think the committee got Pool C right, given what they had to work with. Now, that can be true, and we can still say it stinks that two of the top 15 teams in our poll we won't get to see play again. But the committee got some smaller things right, too, separating conference rivals, not just in round one, but in deeper rounds. Wheaton is clear across the bracket from North Central, Wesley won't have to see Salisbury again, but it could play a rematch against DelVal. Oshkosh and Whitewater just played in Week 11 and couldn't meet again until the semifinals. Even Redlands and Chapman and Linfield are separated. So there are some subtly nice things about this bracket, too, not just the big stuff. 
Yeah, that is the sort of thing that is really difficult to do in football. It's easier in basketball. It's much easier in baseball where, you know, people are sent off. Four teams go to a site, right? And you can send, you know, teams from three or four different regions to meet at one central location. You can't do that in football. Everybody has to be within 500 miles uh, of each other on a one-to-one basis or it uh, triggers uh, a flight. And, you know, those charter flights I saw... Uh, quoted out as much as $100,000 in what I was uh, reading this week. So uh, pretty crazy and pretty expensive. But I agree, having all of those teams separated when in the past it's really not been like that at all is uh, one of the things the committee got right. On the flip side, the list of things they did not get right is is pretty short. I, I mentioned in the interview a few minutes ago the mishandling of those lower seeds. And I went back and looked and reconfirmed. There's nothing here that keeps the committee from swapping those three that I mentioned. Uh, Hanover deserves not to get, uh, you know, thrown to the wolves against the top seed. Not as much, at least as uh, Wabash did. As Wabash finished seven and three, Hanover finished nine and one. Those are also important details. And you know, Hanover wouldn't have much of a better chance against UW Whitewater. At least Hanover had earned the opportunity to not have to play the number two overall seed. So I think that's a spot they missed out on. I'd like to talk about a team that played itself in and out of a uh, home game in week 11. I thought Brockport probably let a home game get away by losing to Morrisville State uh, on Saturday. Case Western Reserve probably cost itself one or could have cost itself one with a loss to Carnegie Mellon that flew under the radar, quite frankly, with all the action in week 11. And Wabash lost for the third time this season, so it was never getting a home game, but the Little Giants managed to dodge that matchup at Mountain Union. Yeah, I mean, Case, I don't think was going to get a home game even with a win before we uh, when we did our projection before week 11, we had them going on the road to Bridgewater. Now they go on. uh, They end up going to the road on the road on the road to Union. That's about the same. You're kind of in the same position either way. So, uh, yeah, there really wasn't an opportunity for anybody to play their way into a into a home game. Teams kind of were locked into some of these positions before the playoffs or before week 11 started and the one team that played itself into doing something that it wasn't going to do otherwise was uw oshkosh which obviously played itself into the playoffs in the first place all right what's the most intriguing thing in this bracket you think people might have missed and i don't know if it's the most intriguing but i do think it's interesting we end up with a rematch of one of the best division three playoff games of the past decade and that's a game between north central and wabash this was a round two game at wabash back in I didn't write this down in my notes, but I think it was 2012 in which uh, the Little Giants scored the final 22 points of the game, all of them in the last 11 minutes. They go for a two point conversion with 52 seconds left and got it to win the game 29-28. So this year's game would be really hard pressed to measure up to something like that. But at the very least, uh, the fact that those two end up in the same matchup on Saturday will be uh, will trigger some uh, some interesting memories among the fans of both of those teams. Coach Catanzaro in the interview referenced trying to mix matchups up, which is a thing we all complain about when committees don't do it. So I think this committee gets credit for trying to do it. And remember, they tried not to send Redlands to UMHB, but they're constrained by the budget. And the budget comes from the D1 TV basketball deal, so D3 can't complain. If we had to foot the bill ourselves, you'd see turning, you'd see teams turning down away games if they were required to fly. So big picture, though, my answer to this question is that there are a handful of road teams 
with uh, with good shots at winning, maybe as many as five I would consider favorites, especially if you go by the top 25 ranking. I think that gives round one some intrigue, and it needs it badly because I don't see a ton of compelling storylines or super neat matchups, although I do think it's going to be a lot of option handoffs in SUNY Maritime and Salisbury. Yeah, I mean, SUNY Maritime doesn't exclusively run option anymore, but they will definitely, uh, they'll definitely run that uh, game down quickly. Uh, for my best first round game, I think I'm going to take UW Oshkosh at Central. These are two teams that are really playing at their best right now with a, a pair of dynamic quarterbacks, one who's a senior in Blaine Hawkins and one who's a freshman in Kobe Berghammer. Central's just four hours from me, and you know St. John's is about an hour and a half in the opposite direction, but I'm tempted to take the longer drive down to Pella, Iowa for this game, even if it means missing Don Beebe. Don Beebe! Don Beebe caught him from behind. You know, then again, I think I'm uh, I, mean, I think I'm expected to participate in the uh, whip around show on Saturday. So maybe I'm not going to get to either one of these. But uh, that should be a great game in a first round that might actually have more than two or three good games. You know, we often have uh, first rounds in which the average margin of victory is pretty horrendous. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily see a lot of uh, great, compelling matchups in round one. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan, though, of a lot of the, the looks in round two and, and round three. And, of course, I think I say that every season. And, uh, you know, bears, bears out more, uh, sometimes more than others. I think the Delaware Valley at Bridgewater game is the most appealing first-round game to me. You know, I can't really figure out what the Eagles' ceiling is, even having seen them play live a couple weeks ago. And I think the Aggies would be a legitimate top-10 team if uh, if they had managed to take the fourth overtime in that matchup with Wesley. Bridgewater's got some big receiving targets and a, and a pretty nice defense, or a defense that at least played pretty well against Randolph-Macon. They have a, a All-American caliber linebacker that you'll want to keep an eye on if you happen to be peeking in on this game on Saturday. Um, you know, all the links will, as they always are, be on our video board. And so if you're one of those folks who just has uh, doesn't have a, a team in the postseason that you really want to follow and you, and you watch a bunch, this is one of the games you'll want to tune into because I think Delaware Valley has got some speed that could present some problems for Bridgewater. And they also have some guys on the D-line that you want to keep an eye on, the Nobile brothers. Definitely looking forward to that first round game. I think that, uh, you know, I don't I, I didn't vote for Case Western Reserve at any point this season. But, uh, you know, Case surprised us at Illinois Wesleyan a couple years ago. And I think that'd be a really good game against Union on Saturday. I think that Brockport Western New England game is going to be a good game. I think I don't know about Barry and Huntington. Redlands has surprised us in the past in games that we think they're overmatched in in the playoffs, specifically at Mary Harden Baylor. Maybe they have an opportunity to do that here. Hope and Wartburg, I think, should be very interesting as well. That's a, a 3 6 game, more or less. I think actually the St. John's Aurora game could be closer than expected. It should definitely be entertaining. They're going to be throwing the ball all over the lot. Um, and then there was the game that I spotlighted and the game that you spotlighted, spotlit put a spotlight on so i think there's some options there yeah i actually do think you're right about the the saint john's aurora one um even if the johnnies do run away with it it should be a, a pretty fun one obviously because of what don Beebe's done with uh, with the aurora program but also because you know saint john's when they're on they're on and and when the, the offense is not on it's uh, still a pretty good team defensively keith we also typically talk about the toughest path to the stag bowl well, path wasn't the first thing I noticed when when we got our first look at this bracket, which I think says a lot for for the balance 
in it. There were no huge arguments, at least that I saw on Twitter, about the, the wrong number one seeds or the defending champion and Stag Bowl runners-up being on the same side of the bracket or too many top teams being squeezed into one quadrant. In a way, this makes the committee a bit like the officials on game day. We all notice and quibble with what they miss, but nobody grants them the large percentage of things that they get right because that is the job. They get everything right. All that said, as much as we try to fix the process, you still get Redlands having to go to UMHB, and you might remember the close game pad. I remember that 50-6 to one where they <laughs> scored on the last play to make it uh, to give themselves a six and, and not – be shut out. I think this is a much different Redlands team than then, and it and uh, MHB has uh, has struggled at times this season. So you may see that, but you've also seen them hang seventies on teams, and and that could that could get interesting. But if by some reason Redlands pulled a momentous upset, Whitewater still looms ahead in the same bracket. Likewise, North Central being ranked in the top ten all year and going to Mount Union most likely in round two stinks. Although fun for us. To, uh, to watch from afar. And to be honest, it, it was a uh, North Central was a second chance team to begin with, did not win its conference, did not uh, finish ahead of Wheaton. But I also think the inverse of that can be true that for all the years readers complained about an easy Mountain Union path, setting North Central and maybe Wesley in that path at least eliminates that talk. All right, here's the reason why you and I don't remember it the same way. The game you're remembering is a Chapman game. It's Chapman who scored on the final play of the game. Mary Harden Baylor and Redlands, the one I'm thinking of, I was thinking it was slightly more competitive than it ended up being. This was a round one game in 2016 in which Redlands led 21 to 14 at the half and 21 to 7 just before the half, but it ended up that, uh, let's see, Mary Harden Baylor outscored them 36 to 7 in the second half to win 50 to 28. Uh, you send my apologies then to to Mike Maynard and the folks out at Redlands for confusing them with a conference rival. Uh, I do think, though, there's a there is a, a, on the other side of the bracket. There's a potential second round with Wheaton, UW Oshkosh, Linfield, and St. John's, and everyone in that quadrant, Chapman and Central included, has the toughest path. Yeah, I definitely like that uh, potential North Central Mountain Union matchup. I wish it were in the quarterfinals, perhaps, but oh well. You know, Brock Rudder against a secondary that people were complaining about early in the season, uh, that maybe they were not as uh, well tested as they've been in previous years. How about North Central trying to contain D'Angelo Fulford? Maybe I'll be traveling on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, beyond that, though, I'm not sure Mountain Union is going to see a team that should challenge it again until possibly the semifinals or the championship game. It's still an easier path than uh, either top seed would face on the left-hand side of the bracket, that's for sure. Yeah, you remember that's the sound of uh, off the beaten path as uh, we venture a little further afield for a highlight that is uh, outside of uh, maybe the things that we've focused on during the course of the week. And I'm going to go to the OAC, which is, you know, typically the road that is pretty well beaten. But uh, I'm talking about the Wilmington-Otterbein game, a game in which Wilmington won 28-27. to Teams each scored two touchdowns in the fourth quarter, and Wilmington's last one came with 15.4 seconds remaining as Kyle Barrett hit a Tika win for a touchdown. After a timeout, uh, and hit a touchdown, of course, to uh, cut the lead to 27-26. to After a timeout, Wilmington decides to go for two. Barrett rolls out to the right side, then hits Wynn, who kind of twists and rotates his body in between two defenders to get to the ball, then get himself into the end zone for the two-point conversion. Keith, I sent you a picture in the rundown. You can see Wynn's got the ball in his hands uh, here in the center of the frame, and here's what it sounds like on the Otterbein video broadcast. 
right, yeah, this is this is the this game. This right is here. your ball game right this here. Is the game, just 15 seconds, not you know any time to do anything. Flair for the dramatic. We've seen it all day. So here we go, Barrett in the shotgun. So play action. He's rolling in the end zone. He gets it. Wilmington converts the two-point conversion and takes the lead. And Otterbein right now is stunned. The win moved Wilmington to 3-7 and seven on the season. That's its best record since 2008, and it also matches the number of wins Wilmington has had in the past three seasons combined. This photo of the uh, catch in the end zone, Pat, may not even be the most famous or well-circulated photo of a ball caught in the end zone in a D3 <laughs> game this weekend. Yeah. Those of you who are Ronan Bell fans will probably uh, catch what I'm talking about. Uh, but this was pretty solidly off the beaten path, and I give you credit for that. I'm going to go off the beaten path to the uh, consortium rivalry, and I know nobody calls it that. Um, Claremont Mudscripts beat Pomona Pitzer 20-17, to 17, and honestly there weren't a, a ton of dramatics or at least there weren't any, wasn't any scoring in the in the fourth quarter, and uh, only a field goal by each side in the third. So the uh, the tension was, I guess, high all game. It was 17-14 at the half. But the most neat thing about this, and, and longtime listeners know, and for, for some of you newer folks, uh, this is kind of neat. Pomona Pitzer. Well, Pomona Pitzer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Claremont, Harvey Mudd, Scripps College are all separate colleges. They've broken up. The five colleges, they share each other's campuses. They're, they're sort of all together in the same spot in Claremont, California, which is in Southern California. And uh, these five colleges have split into two athletic programs, Pomona Pitzer, Claremont Mudscripts. They have two fields on campus or campuses. But uh, the, uh, the interesting thing is, of course, the teams come from their own locker rooms. They dress. There's no bus to the road game. They just walk down 6th Street to uh to the field and and that becomes a bit of an event and uh it's it's just one of the super unique rivalries in d3 and because there were so many other rivalry games with playoff implications and with uh record-setting crowds and other sort of um huge reasons to to be on the radar on uh in week 11 you know we didn't get to talk much about this one um, but it's a, it's a neat one as well. So I just wanted to, to bring it up and give a nod to the folks out in, uh, in California, especially for, uh, for Claremont to get the win coming off a season in which it was the Skyac champion. And then I think thought it had a chance to repeat finishes at five and five Pomona Pitzer at five and four, but losing the most important game of the season. I still want to make it to as many of these big week 11 rivalry games as possible. Uh, and that is definitely one of them, even if it's, you know, unlikely to have playoff implications like some of the others, you know, having been to Monon Bell, having been to a couple of Cortica Jug games, having been to a Secretary's Cup. Um, I actually have not been to a Randolph-Macon Hampton-Sydney game because I figure you are more likely to be there, and why should I also go? But I try to get that in at some point also. Yeah, that's why I haven't been to Tommy Johnny or Johnny Tommy since 2008. Uh, you've been to Dutchman Shoes, and I haven't. Um, I'm trying to think if I've hit any other the great rivalries that, that you haven't seen. I saw Amherst the week before it played Williams, but I have not seen Amherst-Williams game. And that is technically the oldest rivalry 
in D3. So maybe one of us should get up to get that one time. But you can't clone yourself. Yeah. I know a uh, long time podcast listeners and new podcast listeners alike know that. And that's not really uh, <laughs> in, insightful. That's not unique to this podcast. Yeah. Nope. Nope. But uh, you just can't get everywhere in week 11. And uh, it's going to take you several years to get to all the sites you want to get to. My most surprising result from Saturday has to be, it has to be SUNY Maritime over Mount St. Joseph. I think we had, I had basically penciled, no, inked in SUNY Maritime to enter the playoffs at four and six. Can you imagine if, uh, what would have happened on Twitter on Sunday if, uh, if, if SUNY Maritime had come up on the bracket as four and six? I'm actually quite thankful they won this game. Uh, they beat Mount St. Joseph by the score of 11-9. This is just a a crazy box score to read. Uh, SUNY Maritime scores late in the first quarter, and my you know one of my favorite kickers in Division Three is SUNY Maritime's kicker because his name is John Gagliardi, uh, and his extra point was blocked and returned 98 yards for a defensive two-point conversion. So Mount St. Joe is down... Six to two. Triton Tomlin throws a, a a touchdown pass on the next drive, and they go up nine to six. Uh, there's a field goal to tie it up at nine to nine, and that's how they go into halftime. And uh, you know, Keith, I think you know, and I don't know how many of our uh, listeners do, that uh, SUNY Maritime is right on the water. It probably makes a lot of sense, right? That that seems fairly logical, but the field is like literally right on the water, and there's no grandstand between the edge of the field and the water. So the I can imagine the wind could have been fairly crazy on Saturday, and could have affected, you know, Chaiten Tomlin, who's had some really prolific passing days in his four-year career at Mount St. Joe. He was only 14 to 25 for 107 yards on Saturday, but the winning score. So I mentioned it was 11 to nine. Uh, the winning score comes on a safety as uh, Tomlin is sacked in the end zone on uh, on uh, third down from his own nine-yard line. Betancourt with the safety with 6.37 to go in the game. And that's the final score. Maritime comes out and then runs out the final six and a half minutes of the clock and comes away with the victory. It's just... Uh, you know, when I saw that on the scoreboard on Saturday, well, you were there <laughs> when I saw it. Um, I don't know how many takes that was, but it was multiple extra takes before I could finally accept that that was the result that was actually true. Yeah, well, the, the big reason is Mount St. Joseph, had, it was coming off a 70 spot if it wasn't the, the week right before this game, and maybe it was the one before that. But they had been, you know, when we know the quarterback's name, Right. And it's not a playoff team. You know, you, you know you've done pretty well for the season. And so, yeah, that was definitely a, a big surprise. Um, my most surprising result was UW-River Falls beating UW-Platteville. I, I just don't know if Platteville didn't show up for this one, but uh, they were 7-2 and two coming in and probably looking to finish the season solid 8-2. and two. River Falls was 1-8 and eight coming in, and, and that's a program in the WIAC that's really, for a long time, um, Felt like it was close to turning the corner. They took a bit of a sp- step back this uh, this season, but it was a, uh, a second half in which it shut out UW Platteville and put up ten points, and that was just enough to uh, to get River Falls its second win of the season. So they finished two and eight. They beat Platteville thirty one twenty four, and uh, Platteville avoids 
finishing eight and two. So that was my biggest surprise in a day where uh, where you know there were some mild surprises all across the board, but I thought yours was pretty good in uh, in, in scoring margin, and this one was pretty good in just. I was not expecting uh, River Falls to beat Platteville. Well, and it goes back to what Pat Cerrone said on Podcast 259, right? The When we talked with the UW Oshkosh head coach, he said that, you know, you cannot take it easy at, at any point in any game in that league. You know, someone was, he relates a story and people can go back and listen to get the uh, the precise wording of it. But he relates a story in which someone was telling him, uh, was was trying to suggest that, it would be easy, easier for them the week that they play River Falls. And he was like, no, that team is just as talented as, as everybody else. You have, to get up, you have to get up to prepare for them as well. So God, Pat Cerrone said a lot of things in that podcast on Friday that, uh, that were strangely prophetic, and that was not one that I would have expected. Yeah, well, he's, a, he's a fun guy to talk to, so I'm uh, glad we got to have him on the pod. And uh, Maybe it won't be the last time this year since uh, the old Titans snuck into the postseason. Before we go, though, we mentioned, of course, the Cortica Jug uh, won by Ithaca. Congratulations to them. A lot of other rivalries, some of which uh, uh, go so far below the radar that I had to be reminded that they existed, such as the bronze ball for Manchester. So let me just take a moment and recognize as many rivalry winners from Saturday as we can manage. These are ones that I know are either rivalries with names or have trophies attached to them. So congratulations uh, to Ithaca on winning the Cortica Jug, Delaware Valley, the Keystone Cup, John Carroll, the Cuyahoga Gold Bowl, Union, the Dutchman Shoes, Carnegie Mellon, the Academic Bowl, Merchant Marine, the Secretary's Cup, Hobart, the Centennial Cup against Rochester. I had to remind myself that existed. Bridgewater State, the Cranberry Bowl, Grove City winning the Mercer County Cup, Wilkes, the Mayor's Cup, Randolph-Macon, the game, DePaul, the Monon Bell, Manchester, the Bronze Ball, Defiance, the Hammer, Augsburg, also the Hammer. I assume they're different Hammers. Hanover, the Victory Bell, and then Claremont Mudscripts winning the 6th Street Trophy. Congratulations to all y'all uh, for your, uh, your uh, you know, finishing week 11 on a high note. Yeah, well, I thought we're, we're going to finish this podcast on a high note. I thought uh, Joe Germanario, we talked a little bit about it in the uh, in the um, segment from MetLife, but he got to finish his, his career on a high note and certainly was a curiosity because he was an All-American at Brockport and moved to Ithaca, had Ithaca undefeated uh, for a good portion of this season and, and got to go out really controlling the game in a lot of ways in front of 45,000 uh, in the Cortica Jug game. And uh, the, the standout number to me was 34 carries for a quarterback. And, and uh, that was pretty impressive. And, uh, and one other thought I'd like to add in, is that as much as we complain about having five and just five at-large bids in, a, uh, in the 32-team field, the NESCAC can take its 28th bid anytime it wants. It has 10 teams. And so really we've got one more free spot than uh, than really we should have, and to be quite honest, if you want to start, you know, wasting time at work sketching some crazy things out, you could take this out to a to about a forty team bracket with sixteen teams playing in week one, and then getting it down to thirty two in uh, in in week two, which would be uh, the current round one, and then going from there. So there are uh, there are extra bids out there, and, and we could expand this thing if we really thought it was important enough. And by we, of course, I mean 
uh, the voting Division Three membership. Yeah, we are capped at 32 teams. Uh, there's supposed to be one playoff spot for every six and a half teams uh, in Division Three, but uh, because of the length of the season and the length of the tournament, it takes five weekends, obviously, to play a 32-team tournament. Uh, we're not, we don't get the 38 teams or so that we're entitled to. But, you know, that still makes me think, you know, you, you bring up Middlebury and we, we slot Middlebury into the bracket, maybe right around the spot where Western New England is, you know, whatever, we would find Western New England in another spot. But think about Western, uh, about Middlebury facing Brockport on Saturday. What an interesting game that would be. Sure would be. But another thought for another day and uh, a different podcast. Yeah, and this podcast was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 260. Uh, season 13, episode 22, released on November 18th of 2019. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on We're going to have a lot of coverage this week. So we're going to have uh, team capsule previews. There, uh, People uh, look forward to those. We'll be doing those for the 21st consecutive year. I think about all the hours of sleep I have lost to getting those capsules together and posted. Uh, we'll be doing our predictions, uh, not only, of course, in quick hits on Saturday, where we will predict the score of games, but also we'll have uh, surprises, disappointments, and then uh, pick the uh, who we think are going to be the champions of each of those four brackets that will be in Around the Nation later this week. Uh, so keep an eye on all of that. And, of course, uh, if you like this podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher, iHeartRadio, anywhere you get podcasts. You uh, give us a rating. Give us a five-star review if you really like us. Um, you know, because we like that. That will help other football fans find this podcast. Also, you can leave comments for us on the blog page. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and uh, some of the other music we use in this podcast is by DJ Mentos. And you can find him at DJMentos.com. Thanks to our guests, Dan McNeil and Jim Catanzaro, as well as uh, J.P. Williams from the NCAA, sports information directors Fran Alia and uh, Justin Lutz for their time and uh, their help on this edition of our show. Thanks also to the fine folks at the National Football Foundation, as well as to all the uh, stadium staff at MetLife Stadium. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. I mean, it's Selection Sunday, so there's stuff to talk about. We're not gonna, we're not gonna skimp hey, on Rob, Selection Sunday. Record-sized crowd. I mean, you had to get a lot of that in there. You're right. There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.